Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, the specially hardened, nuke-proof, safe space of politics from the makers of Romaniacs. I'm Andrew Harrison, and this week on the podcast, there's no justice, there's just us. What's going wrong with Britain's justice system? And will the reform it needs be the reform it gets? Points means crisis. The fallout from the government's immigration system continues to rain down. And with a win for Keir Starmer in the Labour leadership contest looking increasingly likely, we play shadow cabinet fantasy football. Who's on the dream team and who's leaving on a free to Barnston with United Borough Council? These things and more in this week's edition of The Bunker. Before we start, we've got an exciting announcement. We are doing our first ever live show in London on Thursday, the 2nd of April. And it's The Bunker versus Romaniacs, a special show of two halves at the Leicester Square Theatre, where one side evades the B word and the other can't shut up about it. There'll be regulars from both shows on the panels, including me and Roz, plus Ian Dunt, Naomi Smith and Dorian Linsky, and a different special guest in each half too. We're announcing the full lineup soon. Tickets are on sale right now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Get yours, it's going to be a great night. As they say in Thunder Drone, two podcasts enter, only one podcast leaves. Let's say hello to this week's panel. It's book week for Helen Lewis of The Atlantic magazine. Her new book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, is released this coming Thursday. She's actually wearing her own merch. <laughs> hello, Helen. Congratulations on the book coming out. How are you doing? You didn't have to tell them that. They couldn't see. They can see it on the picture when we mm, tweet the picture. There's no escape. It's a nice top. It says Difficult Women. It does. And and, and good. Uh, it's from Lisa Macari. And everyone I sell uh, goes, £10 goes to women for refugee women. So Amazing. it's not purely about me wanting to wear only clothes and blazers with my own face or own slogans it's actually for a good cause it's as well. only just partly that so you've been tweeting various non-compliant women from the book and this week it's been suffragette lady constance bulwell lytton who when arrested wasn't force-fed because she was a lady what happened there tell us give us the tale yeah her, she she was an aristocrat as the name suggests and became a suffragette after kind of having been reluctant for a long time and said i could never do militant actions and kind of got further and further into it and when she got arrested, she kept being released uh, at the same time that other people that she was arrested at the same time as were, were being force-fed when they went on hunger strike. And she was convinced it was because she was an aristocrat. So what she did is she went to a department store, bought a load of rubbish old clothes, bought a pair of kind of, however you, you pronounce, pince nez. It's one of those words I've literally only she ever seen. She got a Primark pince nez, a cheapo. Only ever seen written down. Um, and disguised herself as Jane Morton. She took the surname from a guy I'd written to her called Fred Warburton, jo- Jane for Joan of Arc, and got arrested for window smashing in Walton. Actually, she got sent to Walton, which must be from your home. In jail. Neck in jail. Oh, God, God. Neck of the woods, mm. which I imagine was not was probably quite rough in 1911. It's not great now. Um, and anyway, she nearly got rumbled. This is a terrible fact because her handkerchief had con embroidered on it. Classic. <laughs> you always forget the handkerchief with your own aristocratic first name embroidered on it. But um, And she wrote a David, uh, Henry David Thoreau quote on the one, which is, you know, in a society which imprisons any unjustly, the place for a just man is in prison. And then she added in brackets, all woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, she must have spent, I mean, she had probably had a lot of time writing on the walls. It's quite an in-depth thing to be able to smear on, in your own prison walls. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and she was force-fed, which um, in common with lots of other suffragettes, this was a really radicalising experience because the tubes they used were huge and they were poor pints of stuff. It was sort of brandy and beef dripping. She was a vegetarian. She was five foot eleven. She barely weighed anything when she started. And, and they vomited a huge amount. And you'd be held down by wardresses. It was really unclean and you know the the uh, the tube that has to force open your um the the valve between your trachea and your larynx right to make, to make sure that you don't actually, drown yeah it actually goes down so it bruises your throat and if it goes down the wrong way then it feels like the sensation a doctor said about you know of a drink going down the wrong way times a million if it hits your vocal cords so it's a really unpleasant experience lots of people now think of it as torture 
Uh, and she stayed in doing that, that several times until it, they found out that she, someone rumbled the fact she was an aristocrat, at which point she was mysteriously released. But she wrote about it and it was this huge scandal because, first of all, they'd been presenting force feeding as a medical procedure. And second of all, it was really obvious that they would treat the British government, the establishment, was treating its own people much better than working people, right? Yeah. Uh, and it really exposed that incredible kind of just dehumanisation of, of working class people by, by the prison system. We'll be doing prison system quite a lot later mm. in the podcast, but before that, up to the present day, speaking on behalf of all women everywhere, what mm-hmm. did you make of <laughs> Theresa Villiers defending Pretty Patel this week on the grounds that criticism of her was misogynist? Luckily, women, we all had the AGM, actually, yeah. like this week when we all got together and sorted this one out. And the problem is that you get a lot of this, and it's uh, particularly from the right, as they've seen how effective kind of identity politics has been as a galvanising issue for the left, and I think they're not so much annoyed by it is annoyed that they're not winning at it. So I, I often see these kind of criticism. I'm, I have no doubt that Pretty Patel receives her fair share of both sexist and racist abuse. I have absolutely mm. no doubt about that. That is an entirely separate issue from whether or not she's a bully. And there are credible accusations of that. Mm. You know, to the extent that Mark Sedwell has put out a memo across all of government this week saying, hang on everybody, I think we all just need to calm down. You know, There is clearly something really unpleasant happening in government. Whoever's fault it is, the civil service is deeply unhappy. Mm. Also with us is Ros Taylor, editor of LSE Brexit. I'm not to say Brexit in, that, in those circumstances. Hello, Ros. How are you Brexit. doing? Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Brexit. Shh. Put, put some money in the Brexit <laughs> swear jar. Um, you're also a woman. What do you think of the Pretty Patel thing? <laughs> on behalf of all women. Well, on behalf of all women. No, um, I mean, my worst boss ever was a woman. And, uh, my second worst worst boss was a man. I mean, it, it is completely meaningless to define it in this, this way. I think it's just the fact that there are more women in management positions than there were. They get more attention because they're regarded as uh, new and perhaps even difficult, to, as Helen might put it. And that is one of the reasons why. I've no doubt, however, that uh, Pretty Patel, according to all reports, has been very difficult. But uh, it's not for me, it, this is not a gender issue. Mm. You were delighted this week to see that Toby Young, the Tea Party Harry Hill, as one of our listeners calls him, is setting up the Free Speech Union to protect people from what he calls off- offence archaeologists. You had uh, strong thoughts about this, I believe. <laughs> I did think it was very strange. I thought it was also quite canny in the way that Toby Young is is sometimes quite canny as well as being remarkably stupid in many ways. But the, what he was doing, what he's doing is setting up a union, which is quite a left-wing thing to do. And in wanting to potentially to go to law, to defend people, and he's actually trying to appeal to people who wouldn't normally be on his side at all. He's appealing to the rule of law and he's appealing to the left and that was quite canny. Having said that, it does sound the most dreadful organisation. I mean, they're actually going to have what they call speakeasies in pubs. Um, I can only imagine that Tim Martin at Weatherspoon is already on the blower with a two-for-one happy hour deal for for these events. And... He's also going to organise his followers and his members to pile in should one of their members feel... And it's just going to cascade and it's going to get even worse. It's monetising dogpiling. Yeah, exactly. It's monetising dogpiling. Sounds great. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about jail and justice this week. And to help us, we're joined by special guest Sashi Nathan, who is a lawyer, co-founder of the not-for-profit criminal law group Commons Legal, director of advocacy at the campaigning group 89UP, but most importantly, a hardcore Liverpool FC fan. So we're going to be giving over the rest of the podcast to discussing the godlike majesty of Jurgen Klopp. Indeed. Hello, Sashi. How are you doing? Yes, very well, thanks. How do you feel uh, about the West Ham game? You're right. You know it's OK. It's all fine. We've got we've got Jurgen. Um, I think we're, we're the relentless red machine is just marching on, so... 
That's enough football, apart from one thing. You crowdfunded an attempt to stop the 2018 World Cup being held in Russia, and it didn't work. But is there any sense that football is kind of waking up to its human rights obligations at all? I mean, you, we've got the the horrible stink that's coming out of Qatar. You've got Man City's ownership issues with their human rights struggle. Is that starting to get traction now? So um, Qatar is an interesting example because it, it's part, it's the last part of the old regime, the Blatter regime of FIFA, uh, awarding the hosting contract at that time to both Russia and Qatar. And to a certain extent, um, FIFA has moved on by having a, a human rights policy and a human rights advisory board. Um, but I think it might come too soon for us to see kind of a full development of human rights for the Qatari World Cup. Um, having said that, uh, there are sort of lots of other fields of football that are that are that are developing. So UEFA are going to require the hosts of the next European Championships to have human rights policy. Uh, so that'll be between Germany and Turkey. So I don't think there's much <laughs> much of a contest there. Um, but football is is going in the right direction, and I think um, it, it is going to take a lot of work. But um, the the corporate sustainability and uh, the the arena of um, business responsibility for human rights obligations is is a developing field. So, and, and if football can drive that, that's good. This is kind of, you know, ground zero of British kleptocracy. They say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm Brian Kloss, the host of Power Corrupts. Come explore the dark side of power on topics ranging from propaganda to conspiracy theories, mercenaries to biological warfare, and money laundering to election rigging. If you tell a small truth, sometimes you will accept a bigger lie. Subscribe now to Power Corrupts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's start with the justice system. No Home Secretary ever crashed their career by saying the system is too harsh, and Priti Patel seems intent on playing the hardline Home Secretary role to the hilt. Last year, she said she wanted more criminals to literally feel terror as she begins her reforms. More police, more jails, and a full-on law and order approach. The system itself, however, is giving every indication of approaching failure. The courts are both overwhelmed and suffering from 10 years of tightening resources. Prisons are a black box from which news of worsening conditions and outcomes seldom emerges, and now the government wants to put yet more strength on it. What reform does the criminal justice system need and what is it likely to get? Sashi, firstly, give us the give us the summary. What's going on? What are the big trends and the major recent developments? So what, what we're starting to see at the moment, and we've seen it for a few years, is the chickens coming home to roost, which is underinvestment, chronic underinvestment in the in the courts, in the prisons, in the police, in the Crown Prosecution Service. And um, it's leading to a system, a criminal justice system that is increasingly dysfunctional. This is going to become bigger, bigger. It's a rising problem in terms of people feeling the effects of crime crime rates going up and serious crime rates going up. Um, and it's going to become a bigger problem in the years to come because unless the government seriously invests in, in, in the police and the prisons and the courts and legal aid, um, the criminal justice system is, is just not going to function the way that society expects it to. You talked about the, uh, the issue of single justice procedure, courts criminalising people for low-level offences and then convicting them in their absence. Yeah, so one of the interesting things, and, and there are two big trends that I think are going are gonna to come about or are going to start to, to raise their ugly head. One is um, the lack of participation, because, of course, to have any meaningful justice, it has to, it's a participatory process, which means that um, people need to feel like they're contributing to what's, to what's happening. The single justice procedure is uh, basically has come about from... from 
an inversion of that participatory process whereby uh, people are criminalised in an automated fashion. So they receive a letter or they don't receive a letter if it's the wrong address that the prosecutor, whether it's um, Transport for London or, um, or or the BBC in terms of um, failure to pay licence fees. And the court just processes those those criminal offence offences without um, people necessarily being there. Um, this has happened before and, it, and, and people do get convicted of crimes in their absence. But the the scale in which it's happening and and the lack of participation from people being accused of crimes it really fundamentally goes to to the heart of what justice should be, which is people being held to account for their actions and meaningfully participating by either attending court or um, or, or, or getting advice and representation on on the legal issue at hand. So um, I think this is going to get worse as and, as and when court processes get automated, um, as and when criminal investigations become automated through the use of facial recognition. Um, this idea that the criminal justice system can be op- operated in a way whereby um, people just sort of accept what's happening to them. And I think there's a problem that people, when they when they accept terms and conditions, when they sign up to a website, they have a certain type of legal engagement that's not how the criminal justice system can work. It has to be all in. It has to be people meaningfully contributing to what's going on. So what for you are the kind of are the sort of the sort of pressure points where we're likely to see kind of visible problems that are going to make the front pages in you're running all the way up from sort of minor stuff to that to, to major criminal things. So I think what 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 we're also going to see is um problems with equality before the law. So different people being treated differently. So we're we're two years on from the two and a bit years on from the Larry report. I don't think, um, although some of the recommendations to a certain extent have been adopted, we uh, a lot of the bigger picture issues, as in you can you can change you can try and change the way that um, people from black and minority ethnic communities are treated in the criminal justice system. But fundamentally, if you don't if you don't provide legal advice and representation to people who don't qualify for legal aid, you're still going to see. A bigger picture problem of certain for certain communities. So, for a lot of people, they think that legal aid is, you know, they know that changes have taken place, but they think it's still the safety net that's there for most people. What is the current situation with legal aid? So, the, the way in which legal aid has been has been cut, both for um, criminal defendants and in other areas of, um, of social welfare, um, has meant that actually there's there's this position of the squeezed middle. So if you're if you if you're subject to benefits or if you're someone of a extremely low income, then normally you should qualify um, for, for, for legal aid. But if you're someone who's just above the threshold, which is quite low, it's it's, it's in the twenty thousands of pounds in terms of disposable income, you don't qualify, and in which case you're expected to represent yourself. Uh, and that that is that is really difficult because the the, the way in which the criminal process works it, it is basically based on a system where people are represented and as much as there are court staff and people available to assist they're not they're not fundamentally there to help defendants in their um, in, in their cases I think it's really striking as you say how much the bureaucracy has just absolutely shuddered to a halt and people representing it themselves which is spiked has made that so much worse because if someone doesn't turn up at the right court with the right paperwork this then you know then the whole thing is abandoned for the day people get taken out of prisons to a court hearing that then doesn't exist and then get taken back again they don't always get their request to deliver evidence by video link from the prison you know there are all these kind of incredibly wasteful expensive things happening because it's just not 
being run properly. And that's not because the people involved in it are stupid or lazy. That's because fundamentally the money has just been stripped and stripped and stripped out of it. Well, the options, the, the kind of the, the path forward that the government is offering is more prisons and more coppers, which never plays badly in the press. But, we, you know, I'm sort of old enough now to have seen the cycle of cut the police, crime rises, bring the police back on the streets. We've solved it. No, you haven't because you haven't put any money into, into rehabilitation. I mean, Helen, you've just done, you just interviewed the filmmaker Chris Atkins, who went to Wandsworth for five years for tax fraud and has written the, the book A Bit of a Stretch. Yeah, he what was only that? in Wandsworth for a year, actually. So he got a five-year sentence of which you'd expect yeah. to serve half. Um, and you, until you're down to um, 24 months, you can't go into an open prison. So he had a stretch in Wandsworth, which is a category B, so the second highest category, a closed prison. And the, the, his description of that was, of course, with everything that I've heard from people who work in the justice sector, but I don't think it necessarily... So it's just all the kind of what he calls the white collar club, which he ended up sort of hanging out with, which are the group of principally white, principally middle class people who committed crimes like fraud or computer hacking, aren't don't have mental health problems, aren't addicted to spice, this incredibly powerful psychoactive synthetic cannabis. They ended up basically kind of running a whole shadow job economy in the prison where they would do loads and loads of jobs that probably once would have been done by by prison officers. At the same time, you have situations where the whole prison's put on lockdown actually for weeks on end and, and people only get an hour out of their cells unlocked time because there aren't enough prison officers to, to run it. And that's a direct result of Chris Grayling having taken out a huge amount of money, which they're now trying to put, you know, they're, they keep talking about more prison officers. What they mean is trying to get back up to the levels they had before they started cutting them. And if you don't have prison officers, you can't get people out of their cells. You can't do education. You can't do training. You can't let them exercise, you know. And of course, those are the conditions in which a drug like spice, which completely most of the time zonks people out, becomes incredibly appealing because there is literally nothing else to do. Yeah. Well, the, well, the other thing that I found is insane in in the, the interview that you, d- you did with uh, with Chris Askins was this idea that those people you've mentioned have sort of adopted this kind of uh, you know Guardian reading Harry Grout role, where they're like they they they're kind of the don of the jail, but their concerns are not like how am I going to like make a load of money on the snout and all the kind of you know cartoon stuff. It's like well, such and such in his cells being really noisy. He's really letting the neighbour down. I think you also found that the most read magazine in jail is GQ. Yeah, I was really surprised that in Wandsworth. So he's, what Chris said to me was, it's not surprising because this is a group of people who've been sold a dream. You know, you can have all this stuff. You know, he said you know, have cars and watches, and then they find themselves stuck in jobs where they can't have all that stuff. And 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 then one of the reasons that people do turn to things like drug dealing is that they've been told they need to have all this stuff to be happy, and they want to have it, and they feel that like they should have it. So it's not surprising that they love consumer. Magazines. He was, he said, the only Guardian reader in Wandsworth. One of the fascinating things about going into prisons is discovering that people in there are not left-wing, right? Actually, yeah. sometimes you will hear people in prison will tell you stuff about how they think people should be punished more heavily, and you kind of say, "I sit there as a kind of bleeding heart liberal." Go, oh no, I don't think that's really, I don't think that's really on, is it? So you've got people in jails, and it's like it's like a holiday camp there. No, but you're in one, clearly isn't. But they know because they never say it about themselves, right? But mm. they always say that other people on other wings have got it cushy, or you know they've heard stories about stuff. And and there's a couple of things actually. I think what Sashi was saying is really interesting because one of the problems with justice is the fact that local media has been hugely eroded, right? So local newspapers gone out of business at this astonishing rate in the last decade, sometimes replaced by Pravda-style council free sheets. And what that means is that they don't go and do local court reporting. They don't go down to the magistrate's court day after day after day. They don't see the fact that we've outsourced a huge amount of our justice system and no shade to them to elderly white middle class people who aren't paid to do Mm. it, right? That in itself is not a fair way to to justice. I mean, people who do magistrates, as far as I'm concerned, are mostly heroes, not least because it's a thankless job and they do it for no money. But that shouldn't be the way that we we do justice, in my opinion. Mm. 
Yeah, it's true. And I'm one of the groups that's actually, well, I mean, we say suffered, they're actually not in jail. But criminal barristers used to be a fairly high earning profession. You could do pretty well as a criminal barrister if you wanted to. Now, because of the cuts to legal aid and all the things we've been talking about, you earn an absolute pittance on legal aid. And you earn, well, you earn nothing, at, uh, nothing at all, really, as a criminal barrister. And many people are struggling to practice or they just quit and they either leave the legal profession or they go into civil law, which is much more profitable. And it's interesting this knock-on effect this has had on politics, I think, because quite often you would find barristers going into politics. You know, look at Tony Blair, look at Jack Straw. All that kind of generation, particularly of, of Labour politicians, had a strong background in law. You're not getting that very anymore because people struggling to survive on a criminal barrister's income don't have the time to spend campaigning to try to be MPs. People on the in the civil law doing really well generally don't want to uh, because they may not, you know, they may not be fired up by the injustice they're seeing because often they're not seeing the same levels of injustice and also they're usually doing quite well financially so to be an MP would be mean a big pay cut and we all hate pay cuts. So what what you're finding and I think one of the big reasons for the enormous cutbacks we've seen is that there are actually fewer lawyers in Parliament standing up for the criminal justice system. So enjoy Keir Starmer while you can. He's an endangered species. He is, actually. He's, He's very much in the camp of uh, Parliament. Yeah. Just, just yeah. to pick up on those two points, I think it, with, with my clients, the interesting thing that I experience is they expect a sort of a rumpole of the Bailey type experience. And then you turn up to the magistrate's courts and the toilets are a disgrace. The courtroom is kind of falling apart. And you're sort of stuck there and saying, well, you're going to, you will get a fair hearing, but sorry that everything just looks just such a shambles. And you also can't talk about prisons without talking about mental health. I was trying to track down the statistics. There's a parliamentary report into mental health prison. It said, prison estate, it's estimated between 10 and 90% of prisoners have mental health issues. And you go... That's, I mean, that's quite a lot. That's quite a that's quite a big range, guys. Like, could you narrow it down at all? And what that suggests is that they don't, they just do not know. And and from everything that I have heard, mental health issues are incredibly rampant in prison. And and actually, you no, know, if if they aren't where people go in, then they might very well be by the time that they come out. Um, and it is almost impossible to get hold of um, proper medication in mm. in prisons and and for for people with chronic conditions to get in a timely fashion the medication that they need. And it's it's just incredibly sad because punishing a schizophrenic harder does not make them less likely to commit crimes when they come out. Yeah. Sashi, we're, we're in for five years of being told prison works. We're in for five years of being told, this is great, this is, the, this is the, take the tellies out, put them on lockdown. What is the actual, what, what, what kind of actual social cost are we going to be looking at here? And what will the cleanup cost be, do we think? So the fundamental reason for all this, well, economically, there would be a big cost to expanding the prison system. We'd have to build new prisons, we'd have to keep them going. So uh, that will have to come from the exchequer and the taxpayer ultimately have to fund that if that's what people want. But the reason why we end up here perennially, I think, is because we fundamentally we don't understand recidivism in this country. We don't understand why people re-offend. We don't almost want to understand why people re-offend. So... And not just because they're the age-old example, but Northern European, Scandinavian countries, they've tried to understand the reason why people reoffend. You know, the most extreme exaggerated example of this is the, the emergency, emergency legislation that's just gone through Parliament on um, ensuring that terrorist um, offenders um, are, are not released on licence after 50% of their of their sentence, but 66%. Well, that that's fine, but if they're not being de-radicalised, you're just adding, you know... Mm a sixth more sentence to no, to no real effect. So 
it is it is a slightly circular argument, which we I'm not quite sure why we're ha- why why we're having. Yeah, we um, don't know which de-radicalisation programmes work really. That's another big issue. And you'll correct me if um, I think the resettlement grant you get on your first out of prison, I think, is about forty-seven quid. So assuming you've been in for a GBH, something like that, you've been in there for eight years, so you haven't got a flat anymore, you probably, you're not in, automatically entitled to housing when you come out, you might get a halfway house, you might not. You get you handed back your belongings from when you got, you might not even have a phone for when you went in, and they give you less than 50 quid and go, well, hope we don't see you again. You might as well just spend it in the pub. Because what else is it going to get you? Right, and that's yeah. when we talk about recidivism. It actually putting money into the bit where people that bumpy six months when they yeah. come out of prison would be much better than uh, use of money and much better at reducing crime than simply incarcerating more people for longer. And on the flip side of that, um, just just not not that we're just defence lawyers who are sort of bleeding heart liberals, but in terms of prosecutions, you need to invest in prosecutions. We've just seen probably one of the most heinous criminals in American history, Harvey Weinstein, being being been uh, convicted yesterday the amount of time and resources that were dedicated into prosecuting him were extensive that was not an easy case oh. to prosecute and the cps the crown prosecution service it needs investment um it, it, it often gets stuck between a rock and a hard place for not um prosecuting cases that it should and then failing to prosecute when it when it, when it has well, this is a government that, that prizes um, efficiency and radical thinking and wild ideas and seems to think that those things can substitute for actual investment of money. What sort of Cummings-type reforms are in the, light, uh, in the pipeline for the, for the system? You know, are we, is he just going to sh- shout blockchain and then run out of the room? Is that the kind of... <laughs> well, it's interesting that you raise, you raise blockchain because actually what, what, what there is an opportunity for in, in, in criminal proceedings and actually in civil proceedings is a massive data harvesting exercise. You can actually gain a lot of insight into sort of individual cases. Uh, it, one, uh, one aspect of this is the nationality requirement, which is basically finding out people's nationality every time time they engage with the justice system and therefore if push comes to shove in how many years down the line you want to change immigration rules or you want to make people stateless you have some basis in which to in which to make those decisions um so i don't you think if he had an ounce of genuine radicalism he would look at decriminalizing minor drug offenses it's the most obvious win about why are you cycling people through for small amounts of cannabis and other drugs um, like what to what to to what end? So one of the things that has been talked about is um, abolishing prison sentences of lower than six months, um, which uh, is an interesting initiative because there's there's not a lot of evidence that prison sentences lower than six months actually reduce reoffending or punish the perpetrators of offences very much. But I think what I would like to see, and I, I don't think I'm, I'm a bit weird, but I'm probably not a requisite weirdo or misfit for Dominic Cummings. Um, <laughs> but do yourself down, Sashi. <laughs> I try my hardest. Um, what I would like to see, if you're going to get rid of prison sentences under, uh, under less than six months, less than six months, the idea should be to try and engage with the individual circumstances of people offending. So the issues that Helen raised around mental health issues. Um, so Caroline Flack is another very big case recently. Mm. Without knowing the individual circumstances, difficult to comment. But there are jurisdictions where basically they have courts that um, try and push people towards um, court kind of sanctioned mental health treatment programmes or addiction programs, or, or, or whatever it is, there, or, or you know, drug, rehabilita- drug rehabilitation programs. There are lots of opportunities for courts to engage with people who are offending on this sort of essentially lower level, and to explore why they're offending, and to come to some sort of resolution um, that, that actually helps society overall. 
just to wrap this up, Ros and Helen, you know, some of these, on behalf of all women everywhere, yes. um, hello, hello, um, some of these reforms, these titans, I've been, I've been welcomed. Priti Patel tightened release on bail after the charity Women's Aid pointed to the numerous men who attack or murder their partners while on bail. Are there kind of things we should be looking at? What's going on and, and admiring them, giving them some kudos for what they're doing? I actually think the change on terrorist-related uh, stuff about no automatic release and actually moving that to make sure that there's there was a proper parole board, it was a good idea, right? I, I, you know, it was actually the clear in the case of the guy who stabbed people in the street in South London that lots of people were putting up warning signs saying, uh, he's, he's not de-radicalised, guys, we're pretty sure he's not de-radicalised. And there was nothing that they could do about that. So that has been um, a welcome change. There's a domestic abuse bill and that's going to go up in front um, and that will be a lot of um, arguing about that. There's been stuff recently about you know um, domestic abusers not being allowed to cross-examine uh, complainants in court directly mm. right and that, that kind of stuff is we are moving forwards towards an, an understanding of it the interesting thing for me at, writing from a kind of feminist point of view is this is a problem primarily of men and I really wish that men's rights activists who spend a lot of time complaining about feminism on the internet could really get stuck into this because men make up the vast majority of the prisoner state over was it 95 percent of of people in behind and most of them are men from exactly the groups that we're told you know from lots of white working class men um muslims are overrepresented in prisons bme people are overrepresented in prisons you know these are people who are quite often illiterate for example you know what i mean they've not had the life chances that other people have had and i think that that would be a very good if you want to be a men's rights activist please get in involved in prison reform it is the biggest injustice male-based injustice i can think of currently in 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 the country Let's move on to the devil in the detail of the points-based immigration system. It's going to be a fair bit of Pretty Patel in here too. Last week, the government unveiled its much-vaunted Australian-style system, whereby EU immigrants, like immigrants from anywhere, would be subjected to a strict and quite probably unattainable series of targets in order to get into the UK. Firm job offers from accredited companies, minimum salaries and fluency in English are among the requirements. But over the ensuing days, much disturbing detail emerged. Some involved the strange choice of professions to be given preferential treatment. Others involved the likely consequences of a computer-says-no system, evidently designed by people who think every fruit farm, coffee stall or small cleaning company has a giant HR department. Ross Taylor, give us a quick summary of the system. How does it work and how does it compare with the Australian system that we're aiming to emulate? And you've got two sentences to do this in. <laughs> right. Uh, it's not exactly like the Australian system because the Australian system, you don't need to have a job and also you get extra points if you're young. Second sentence... It's all about characteristics and tradable characteristics. There are three key characteristics that you have to have, speaking English, job offer, job at appropriate skills level, which is really problematic and that I get into later, and then some other stuff like having a PhD and so on. So like just little things like that. So what industries have been marked out as those with sort of job shortages? What are we supposedly going to have a, uh, a complete makeover there? Well, most people who work for the NHS, you'll be unsurprised to hear, um, social workers, pipe welders, um, graphic designers, vets, all in short supply, uh, some secondary teachers and some subjects, not mm. all subjects. And that thing about um, the issue of, you know, underpaid is not unskilled, you know, the, 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 mm. the low salary uh, and the, uh, the conception of what skill is. Yeah. There seems to be a presumption that skill is only a qualification. Yeah. That's the only way to, to sort of uh, mark usefulness or utility. Yeah, and that's very difficult because in the case of, for example, care work, you don't need a qualification to go into care work, and I think quite rightly so. But 
um, introducing the skills level means that you have to have a minimum of basically A-level qualification for whatever job you're going to do. And if you're a care worker, you don't need to have, so, so there's no qualification requirement, so you can't enter via that route. And that is a really problematic thing that government doesn't seem to have realised or be in a good position to solve. This It is it's an odd kind of micro-manifestation of the idea that you know, the Conservative Party was always about remove legislation, remove red tape wherever possible, and it's now constructing this kind of ziggurat of unimaginably unattainable regulation to attain one kind of key message to the electorate. Is this the kind of thing that, it clearly doesn't fit with old-fashioned conservatism, does it? Is this the kind of thing that's going to make sense out in the country? They look at it and think, yeah, good, well done. Um well, they will because, or people who want to will, because it will look so complicated that they'll think, oh, it'll be really hard for people to get into the country. Uh, that's got to be a good thing. Uh, excellent. And the only people we'll have coming in are people who are really clever. The problem is, of course, that we need not just people who are really clever, but people who have all sorts of other skills that you can't measure through PhDs and through A-level style qualifications. And these are the people, many of whom have been filling these vacancies because we have almost pretty much full employment in this country now. We don't have any stretch in the job market right now. That may change if we go into recession, but right now we don't. So we need to completely rethink how we're going to attract people into these shortage um, shortage occupations while still while they still fulfil the characteristics that we're demanding. And there's a great mismatch between the two. Mm-hmm. Helen, there was a load made about the requirement for the English language. How much of a problem is it that, that uh, is that requirement going to prove? Because there are an awful lot of shortage occupations, but fluency in English is not really, it, it, it's not kind of crucial to carrying out the job, but it's more of a symbolic thing. The trouble with this is, I think there's an argument from the left which says that this is a kind of, the idea of that people should, who come here should learn English is a kind of manifestation of xenophobia. And I actually don't buy it. I think there's a real problem in some communities. For example, in some Somali communities, nine out of ten women don't work, British Somali communities. And actually, if you don't know English, your life is pretty circumscribed. You can only shop in the local shop where people speak your language. You, can only, you can't access services. If your partner is violent, how do you leave? How do you interact with, with public services? And I don't know about you, but I take a pretty dim view of British expats who go to the Costa del Sol and they're still shouting about three sausage and beans, poor favor, 20 years later. So I don't think it's a kind of a totally unreasonable requirement that mm. If you want to make a life in a country, you should be able to interact with its, it, it, you know, its systems in your, your own language. But yeah, I think Ross is right to pick up on some of the other th- weird requirements. The PhD one is particularly, it, that feels very Dominic Cummingsy. Like, what I want is I want brains, yeah. brains. And also an, an exception for Mandarin is the only language he seems to care about. Is it, we can't have any German, French, Italian native speakers. Or they Spanish. Don't, or <laughs> Spanish. A lot of people in the world speak Spanish. Well, yeah. well, basically everybody but Mandarin. You know, we will not have the we will not have people for whom those are their first language. But apparently, Mandarin gets a, gets a pass always, because it's the future and space and stuff. There's also a kind of hilarious level of um, central planning from a government that's supposed to kind of. You know, like the whole argument in the last election was Jeremy Corbyn wants to take us back to the 70s when the state ruled everything and we want to unbound people. The idea that they're kind of saying which people in the orchestras are get an exemption from the the salary rule is kind of faintly hilarious. And this is what happens with the Australian system, right? They tinker with it all the time to change the categories because they suddenly realise. Oh, we haven't got enough hairdressers, right? Let's have some hairdressers in. And the idea that they, you know, there's a sort of slight lag on the idea that they go, okay, we've got enough first violins, but we haven't got enough second violins, so let's change. That's not, you know, that level of, of micromanaging the workforce is is very weird, very statist, and not very conservative. We need, we need a ministry for it, ministry of workforce. It's also the hugest hypocrisy 
and I know this government is full of those, to make English a necessary characteristic when it is done so little mm. to encourage the learning of English. And it's taken away funding from FE colleges that teach English. It's starved that sector of funds so that if you want to learn English, you basically you know, have to go and, and download Duolingo, because which is great that Duolingo exists, but it's not enough. The government has made every effort to stop people actually in Britain learning English. And now... It's saying, right, you have to have English to come here. It's just huge hypocrisy. One of the saddest things about Duolingo, and I entirely agree with you about this, is that Duolingo has this thing that pops up occasionally. It says more people are learning a language with Duolingo than the US public school system. And you think, that's not a good that's thing. That's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> what are you people doing? Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about unforeseen consequences for a minute. There was a brilliant thread on this on Twitter by Nick Tolhurst, if you're out there, which we're going to shamelessly rip off right now. Um, he points out how the salary threshold could properly deepen regional divides because, you know, London is able to meet it. The rest of the country won't. Uh, you know, NHS salaries are below the threshold outside of London, but above uh, in, above it in London. So we could end up in this situation where all of these kind of rules and regulations actually accentuate the very divide that they were supposed to deal with. Yes, this is very possible. <laughs> uh, you will find that people can only get to get a job in London and you may find then that they have to subject themselves to horrendous commutes and live somewhere else much cheaper outside or they will have to live in really bad housing in order to survive in London because, you know, if they're earning about £25,000, it's pretty hard to live in London on £25,000 unless even if you're in some uh, student-style house chair. And what you will find is... Uh, the people uh, who do move in have a very low quality of life and London will be very unattractive for that reason. Sasha, you do a lot of human rights work. Can you foresee trouble, fun and games out of this point space system? I, I do, certainly. I, th- I think having had a look at the at the system, I think there is going to be issues about the fairness of the decision-making, the consistency of the decision-making. The Home Office is a, essentially a flawed institution. Um, but on the, on, on the political... Stop being mean to pretty. Stop <laughs> I would mean. never be mean to pretty, but I mean, the, the problems in the Home Office sort of predate pretty. Um, that's a, um, a bit of a uh, tongue twister. But... Um, <laughs> They, they they are not going to be solved by the way in which she is choosing to address the problem. And I actually think the way in which she's speaking about this new policy is unhelpful. Um, she She's the daughter of migrants. I'm the son of migrants. And, you know, irrespective of the fact there may be a democratic mandate for this legislation, the way in which she has chosen to advocate for it, I think, has been needlessly... Um, incendiary and, and 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 could have been addressed in in a lot fairer and a lot more open way, and 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 I think that's because obviously it, it comes from a place of 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 what I would suggest is sort of selfishness um, in the way in which the Conservative Party is 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 operating this immigration policy. It's very short termist, and and actually it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, which is. At some point, the English, the British are going to have to decide what they're for. They can't consistently define, define themselves by what they're against, whether that's being the, the, the European Union, whether that's the Commonwealth, whatever it is. One little tiny aspect of it, that, that, that going back to the musicians, the orchestras, like the idea that the only valid musician is playing in an orchestra. And because my, my background's in music, that just really, really pissed me off so much. So that that, I, that that is the vision of culture. Nothing counts except this thing. I'm that, only smiling because I keep thinking if they ban folk music, then maybe I'll vote for them. Well, yeah, but... I'm I mean, joking. I, know, I love but, folk but, music. I mean, I'm just, I'm just imagining what kind of music events the cabinet go to. 
Uh, well, Michael Gove goes to the Wagner Festival every summer with, with George Osborne. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't have they're like, their big love holidays to South Germany somewhere. Well, <laughs> that <laughs> says a lot. But I mean, I, you know, these these people are of an age where, as students, they should have been going to raves. They should have been going to see Suede. It's, none of this has penetrated. They have this kind of tiny, shrunken, microscopic idea of what culture is. And now it's part of our, our immigration policy. Thanks. The downside thing is you're being very unfair to Michael Gove, who is genuinely a fan of rap music. Yes. That's no, I mean, he really is. I know it's absurd in the same way that I'm a fan of rap music and I know that's absurd as well, but he, he's exempt him from your criticism. We'll follow this up on a later episode. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. It's beginning to look a lot like Starmer. With voting opening this week, the former Shadow Justice Secretary and alleged model for Mark Darcy and Bridget Jones's diary is now 1-9 to nine at Bet365 to be the next Labour leader. Rebecca Long-Bailey is at 15-2 to two and Lisa Nandy is at 12-1. to one. So who's going to be on Team Keir now that Diane Abbott has signalled that her time on the front line is over? We asked the panel to predict who they think will take the big three offices of Chancellor, Foreign Secretary and Home Secretary and to choose a wild card who ought to be drafted in as a member of Starmer-Rama. Now, Chancellor, Who's it going to be? Who are we going for? Roz. Uh, an eagle, I think. Mm-hmm. Maria or Angela. Yeah. Uh, or both. Or both. That would mm. be really cool. It would be a job share of, yeah. of Chancellor. Yeah, I'd like that idea. Yep. And uh, are you asking me about Home Secretary next? Well, no, I'm asking you why. Who do you think? Let's do Chancellor. Let's do a Chancellor entirely. Who do you, uh, you're fancying an eagle. Yep. I'm fancying an eagle. For what particular reason? Um, festering on the back benches um, with their skills massively underutilised for the past few years. I think they're very clever. They're very forensic. Um, they can hopefully show up the government. They also won't be a personal threat to Keir Starmer's authority because neither of them are really going to threaten him as leader or be in the running for a future leadership. Also quite old school and dependable. Yes, exactly. The, away from the... Irrational exuberance, perhaps. Yeah, and, and female. I mean, it's important female because you've got to bear in mind that Starmer has been running against four women and he yet he's almost certainly going to win. And that again, yeah. that says something quite dubious about Labour's ability to countenance the idea of a female leader and which he will want to try and rectify in his appointments. Do we fancy anybody else for Chancellor? I'm going to, well, yeah, Rachel Reeves has always impressed me. She's written a good book about women in Westminster. It's incredibly solid and eventful. And um, Shabana Mahmood was in a junior, one of the more junior ministries in the Shadow Cabinet um, in, the, in the Treasury Department. So if you wanted to pick somebody to, you know, a real high-profile elevation a la um, Rishi Sunak, then that would be the way to go. I have to say, having been to a Starmer rally this week, I think that although he's made a lot of very left-wing pledges, I think he understands there were some problems with the bunkerization, shall we say, of the Corbyn project and is quite key, like the whole message. In the same way that Boris Johnson's message was you're all really tired about arguing about Brexit, I can make that go away. The, the attractive Keir Starmer message to me seemed to be you're all really tired of this Labour civil war, I can make it go away. Now there's obviously, we don't yet know what the percentage of the Labour Party membership is that still loves the civil war, wants to fight, it hates the Blairites and the media and wants to carry on. But I sense there's quite a big caucus of people who are like, can we not just be anti-austerity with Without constantly having endless petty feuds. I don't know what you're talking about. People love bunkers. Bunkers are great. <laughs> Everybody's favourite. Well, just by, by way of disclaimer, Aitan Up is working for the Lisa Nandy for Leader campaign, um, but it, that doesn't influence what I'm about to say, mm-hmm. which is, I, I mean, I, th- I think all the candidates for leadership have been of a, of a high quality calibre, and I wonder if Keir Starmer should go for a sort of a Abraham Lincoln team of rivals type approach and get all the big beasts in. Have in you the met the Labour Party? They turn them all to pieces. <laughs> they probably would, but um, 
at least there's 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 a lot of room and and and, and because we've had such a long leadership campaign um i think the public have got to know some of the candidates and mm-hmm. they're probably um best best served being in prominent position um louise hay is quite highly tipped for home secretary because she's been um, in policing and she's been very strong there and has kind of seemed, seemed to be impressed so if you all fancy a cheeky bet cheeky bet yeah do we, do we fancy anybody else for home secretary Yvette Cooper, surely. Oh, uh-huh. come on. She couldn't bring down Theresa May all that time shadowing her. You know, that's the thing is that, you know, I, I think, no, I'm, anyway, I'm sorry. I know. Yeah, come on. <laughs> you, you've triggered me deeply. Pizza debate, come on. But I think actually she's done a lot better in the causes that she's picked up from the back benches than she'd ever did as Shadow Home Secretary last time around. And I'm not sure if she'll be better if giving another crack is the magic that we need. So whoever's going to get this gig is up against the star of this week's podcast, Pretty Patel. And it's, Labour's always found it very hard. The only th- successful message Labour's ever had on crime is tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Who who's there in the in the bench that can actually could could go up against Priti Patel in a kind of mecha Godzilla style? I'd quite like to see Stella Creasy do it, but I don't know if she would at this stage because she's got a young baby, and while that doesn't rule her out, it makes it more difficult for her to do a very high profile job. I would totally love her to do that. I would yeah. second that. Mm. Who do we fancy for foreign secretary? I actually think Emily Thornberry's foreign secretary has been pretty good. I also think there's a lot to be said for fresh faces. So, yeah. you know, Rishi Sunak is a, is a face that um, the public hasn't seen much of before and is now Chancellor of the Exchequer. And in the Labour Party side, there are a lot of good people in the 2010-2015 intake. So my list um, entails uh, Thangam Debonair, mm. mm-hmm. um, Bridget Philipson. Yes, yes she, we, she's great. We had her on Remain X, she's great. You see what I mean? There are just you, you kind of go yes, good, yes, good. There's going to be more like just fresh faces, fresh yeah. voices, um, and obviously people who are very competent in terms of policy and communication. But also, I mean, if you're going to bring fresh faces in a time when the government's got a vast majority and is going to batter you, whatever, it's a good time to harden your troops. You're going to learn a lot. Yeah. the next five years. You might not achieve that much, but you'll certainly become a better politician. I mean, one thing we know for sure is that there are going to be some disasters in the next few years because Boris Johnson's career has been trailed by just policy and disasters and perhaps on a on a grand scale. So, um, people... Well, the fact that he's, he, he argued with his Northern Ireland Secretary about what was in the de- declaration to reopen Stormont, and, mm. you know, and you get, I was going to say, I forget his surname, for some reason, Julian Smith, um, to say, you know, well, of course, he they read a very acid thing after he got sacked, saying, well, of course the Prime Minister reads everything that's in his brief. I mean, what kind of <laughs> idiot wouldn't do that? And you can't really go, oh, actually, no, I, no, I didn't I didn't notice, I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you entirely. Like, there will be, just because of lack of attention to detail and kind of assumption that you can wing it, there will be avoidable mistakes made. Yeah, I would tip possibly for Foreign Secretary Chris Bryant. He has the kind of free-ranging personality that might suit that, and I think he's angling for a top job. But you've also got very good people who be... I mean, Chion Wura, for example, make an excellent science minister. Mm. Very underrated, very... Uh, doesn't get the limelight often, but very good. Yeah, I did see her at a four-hour play at the National the other day, so she's certainly got the appetite Just for, for long theatre. Well, has she ever been really C-Swayed? That's my question. Um, I bet she has. Go on. If you, if you so. are Chion Wura, you know Chion Wura, all right in to say, <laughs> have you seen... Which do you believe to be the best Swayed album? <laughs> And that's the end of the bunker, which means it's time for Escape Routes. How are the panel taking their minds off politics this week? What books, music, events, TV or massive historical football achievements will take them away from the maelstrom, if only for 90 minutes in the FA Cup fifth round at Stamford Bridge next Tuesday? Special guest, Sashi Nathan, is there a particular thing that's occupying your mind at the moment? There is. My, my wife is half French, um, oh. so I'm developing my French. Uh, I got an A at GCSE. I'm watching lots of French films and TV programmes on Netflix. Are you watching <laughs> a spiral with sub- subtitles off? I, I've started spiral. I've also been watching Die Poissons, which is uh, 
Call My Agent. Ah, yeah, on Netflix. Netflix. I've heard very good things about that, yeah. Which is very entertaining. Right, so that's that, that. That will definitely learning a language from the European Union will definitely take you off British domestic politics forever. <laughs> <laughs> Ross Taylor, how about you? What's your personal mind palace at the moment? Well, I'm many years behind everyone else because I've just started reading Wolf Hall, and I realise this is about eight years overdue since it came out. But I don't like to do things at the same time as everyone else, so that, that, that as with me. And also, she's got a new book out. I understand. So if I continue to enjoy it as much as I am at the moment, I can then have stack up three books, box set style of constant entertainment, and that's a very pleasant thought. You've been reading Hilary Mantel. Yeah, fantastic. How about you, Helen? Uh, I am doing free thinking later this week about female behaviour. So I've been reading the novel of one of my fellow panellists, Kylie Reid. It's called Such a Fun Age. And it is about a kind of white middle class woman who's got a kind of lifestyle blog type thing who employs a black woman to be a young black woman to be her babysitter who then gets stopped by police with the white kid in a, uh, a grocery store and accused of kidnapping her and from there it all kind of spirals and their lives turn out to be connected in a way they didn't realize but it's this really subtle investigation of different particularly the bits that hit home for me is the kind of there's she's very acute on on sort of female behaviour about a motherhood taking away your identity and about race and about well-meaning white liberals actually making people of uh, of colour feel slightly on edge constantly by constantly being really you know really that bit that happens all the time in Get Out where Bradley Whitford's character keep they keep going my dad would have voted for Obama a third time if he could <laughs> it's got lots of stuff white like people yeah it's got a lot of that in it and it's just it's a, it's a I think it's a really beautiful novel about. Um, about women's lives and the kind of complexity of them. I'm really enjoying it. Sounds good. Well, mine is um, Corner Shop. I've got an album out. It's called England is a Garden, and they wrote and recorded it throughout the entire Brexit process, starting out not knowing what the record was going to be, and it's all been shaped by Brexit. Because, of course, there's two kinds of garden, isn't there? There's the garden that's open to everybody, and there's the weed-strewn garden with the wall around it. And it's just brilliant. It's like... Uh, beautiful melodic optimistic and it actually makes you feel like you're escaping the world of politics even though it's about politics so i recommend it hugely and it's out on a thing march the 6th that's um, we're going to have them on romaniacs this week as well a special guest because they do our theme tune and we love them for that and that is the end of this week's bunker thanks to our panel helen lewis difficult women a history of feminism in 11 fights is out on thursday and you're going on tour in a motorhead yeah absolutely um ross taylor you're on romaniacs tomorrow so yes so double duty <laughs> fantastic we'll, we'll, we'll see you tomorrow and sashi nation thanks very much for coming in see you again sometime yeah i hope so thank you for having me uh, remember the bunker versus romaniacs thursday 2nd of april it will be the swats and the blots of political podcasting tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com we'll be back next week subscribe to the bunker on apple podcasts and follow us on twitter at bunker underscore pod and we're on facebook too thanks for listening and we'll see you next week bye the bunker was presented by andrew harrison with ross taylor and helen lewis Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer, Jacob Archbold, and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>